about an hour and a half. That's, that's all it took for me the other day when I first went through my notes on this passage. So, settle in, get real, real comfortable. That wasn't a problem the first time I preached this passage, because the first time I preached this passage, it was hot. I was sweating. I was not wearing a sweater. I can assure you of that. First time I preached it, it wasn't even in English. I was trying to figure out how to pronounce Mount Sinai right in French. Along with all these other names, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I remember as God brought this passage upon me, sitting in that study in Senegal, West Africa, and he, in the only way that a loving father can, crushed me with this text. And so my desire, my goal, is that I could share with you just a little bit of what God has worked in me as I've looked at Exodus chapter 33. It's been there for a long, long time. It showed up in my life several years ago and has had a profound impact on me. We come to Exodus 33, we come to a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. I would argue that Israel has hit its lowest low up to this point in their history as a people. I don't say nation because they're not a nation yet. Before we get to Exodus 33, obviously something has transpired. And many of you know, Israel has been delivered out of Egypt in a miraculous way. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been victorious in battle once already. They've seen God sustain them with water. They are eating bread that literally is falling from heaven every morning. And in Exodus chapter 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai. Now the presence of God has been with the people of Israel from the Passover onward. As I understand the book of Exodus, God's presence shows up to protect them at the moment of Passover from the destroyer that passed through Egypt, but passed over Israel. And He continues with them. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And He goes out with them. But when they arrive at this mountain, Mount Sinai, God's presence shows up in a powerful way, something that would have just blown the senses away. And as he descends on that mountain, he begins to declare to them in Exodus chapter 20 his law. Not not just to Moses. That was one of the things I misunderstood to begin with. It wasn't just to Moses. When God first starts communicating in Exodus chapter 20, He's speaking to the entire crowd. And He starts with what we call now the the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments, right? First commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness 
He finishes that commandment up by reminding them, by telling them, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, the people were so overwhelmed hearing the voice of God by what was taking place that they said to Moses, listen, this is too much for us. We, we don't want to die today. So you, why don't you go up there and you talk to God and we'll stand over here and then you come back, you tell us what he said, we'll listen, we'll obey. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, it says, the people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness, listen to this, where God was. Well, Scripture tells us that from Exodus, that, that Exodus 21 onward, all the way to Exodus 32, Moses is up there on the mountain receiving instruction from the Lord. It took 40 days and 40 nights, but apparently that was too long for the people of Israel. Because in Exodus 32, the people rose up and approached Aaron and said to him, we don't know what's happened to this Moses guy. Now we have to cut them somewhat of a break because remember, this mountain is smoking and shaking and there's lightning and all this kind of stuff. He went into darkness. We're not sure if he's still alive. You need to make us gods to go before us. Gods like went before us all the way here to this mountain. And in utter foolishness, Aaron agrees. And so he tells them to bring him their gold. Gold that Scripture does not tell us, but the only place we know that they received jewelry was when they exited Egypt, when God gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So when they asked for their jewelry and their fine clothing, they handed it over. So they're taking more than likely some of the same gold that God has provided for them and now they're handing it to Aaron and Aaron takes it and he melts it down and he fashions it into a golden calf. And he raises it up in Exodus 32 and says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And if that wasn't bad enough, Aaron built an altar. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And it says the people ate and drank and rose up to play. By the time Moses hears about this, because God tells him, God knew what was going on. He tells Moses what's happening. Moses makes it down the mountain. And he does literally what Israel is already doing. He takes the commandments of God and he smashes them. Then he goes and he takes this golden calf and he grinds it down and he puts it in water and he makes them drink it. In Exodus 32 verse 25, this expression is used that the people had broken loose. I think the best way to understand that term is that they were out of control. They're not thinking anything other than what makes me feel good? What do I want to do? How do I want to party? What fun do I want to have? And so Moses, it says, stood at the entrance to the camp and he shouts out, who is on the Lord's side? And it tells us the sons of Levi came to him. And he says to the sons of Levi, go strap on your swords. He said, you go through the camp and you slaughter your brothers and your neighbors. 
Can you imagine that? So that's what they do. And if all of that was not bad enough, Exodus 32 ends with verse 35. And remember that God had shown judgment against Egypt, against Pharaoh, against the gods of Egypt, primarily through what? Through plagues. Plague after plague after plague. And so in Exodus 32 verse 35, when you read that God breaks out upon His own people in a plague, that was saying something. Now I think, as I understand this text, that the punishment for their idolatry ends there. Punishment for their idolatry ends with this plague. I do not take what God begins to talk about in Exodus 33 as part of the punishment, but rather part of the consequences. Those of us who are old enough, we understand there's a difference between punishment and consequences. Punishment can be part of the consequences, but many times the consequences go beyond the punishment, right? If I go out today wild and crazy and speed uh, down the road and get pulled over, I'm going to get a ticket, right? That's my punishment. I got to pay that fine. Well, when my insurance company finds out that I was reckless and got a speeding ticket, they're going to up my insurance rates. That's not punishment. That's a consequence. If I choose not to study, not that I ever did that when I was a student, but imagine that I didn't study as a student or didn't do my homework, and so I, my grade dropped way down in a class, and I could get away with it back in my day because we didn't have this internet stuff. And so then my, the report card comes out and I'm failing a class. Let me tell you, there was punishment. But when the punishment from my parents was gone, the consequences of now having to pull that grade back up were still there, right? These are consequences that we see here. So, so let's look. Let's look at Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, that is never a good sign. (laughs) When your parents fight over you, it's either really good or really bad. When your mama says, that's my boy, you've done something good. When she says, that is your son, watch out. Your people, right? You brought up, and I, he says that I'm going to give you the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To your offspring, I will give it. And then he says in verse 2 that he will send an angel before them. He's going to drive out all of the people of the land. And then in verse 3 he says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now initially this does not sound bad at all. I mean, okay, we took a little pit stop, Mount Sinai, everybody got out. You know, we stretched our legs, that kind of thing. We've been here for a little while. Now it's time, load back up, here we go. We're off to the promised land. Angel's going to wipe everybody out. To this day, I don't understand why we picture angels as fat babies in diapers with little bow and arrows. Ping, ping. I mean, this is one angel going to wipe out all the peoples of the promised land. Don't picture fat baby in diapers. But God says this is what's going to happen. And you're going to go to the land. It's not a desolate land. It's a prosperous land. Flowing with milk and honey. It is a good land. None of that seems bad. Till we get to the second half of verse 3. And this is what the Lord says. But I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way. 
for you are a stiff-necked people. Now do not read that second half of verse 3 and think of the God of Israel as a, an abusive parent who when their child does not perform the way they want them to, withdraws their love and affection until the child gets their act together. This is not God saying in anger, go away from me, I don't like you right now. This is mercy. This is mercy. God is saying, and He says it very clearly, you are a stiff-necked people. It means stubborn You're rebellious. The imagery of us is of an animal. An animal that you're trying to use to plow a field or ride on. And you're pulling the reins one way. And instead of that animal complying, it is tightening up its neck and pulling the opposite direction. God says, I just gave you my law. I said there is no to be no other gods before me. I said don't make any graven images. I am a jealous God and you did exactly what I told you not to do. I am a holy God. The whole demonstration of Mount Sinai was in large part to show the holiness of this God. So now we've got a problem. A stiff-necked people with a holy God in their presence. If that continues, I will consume you, God says. So depart, it's a command. Leave, get out of here. Now verse 4 tells us, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Now I'd love to know more about what that means, that little word mourned. Why did Israel mourn? Did they mourn like I so often mourn? I mourn when I get caught. I mourn when the punishment comes. I mourn because there are consequences to the stupid thing I just did. Or are they mourning here in that sense of mourning that so often accompanies genuine repentance when we see our sin? That that we, we, we feel that weight, perhaps. If nothing else, I think it is fair to say that Israel mourns here at the proclamation that God is not going to go with them because they understand, even in their infancy, that they desperately needed God. And that's the first thing I I want us to see this morning. Our need for Him. Israel had been 430 years in Egypt. Now, not all of that time were they slaves, but most of that time they were This people who's standing at the base of this mountain are an enslaved, oppressed people. They have never in their lives, nor in their grandparents' lives, known freedom. In fact, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, it talks about the fact that in Egypt they set taskmasters over the Israelites. And it says that they did that to afflict them with heavy burdens. That word afflict means to crush one's spirit. They're not just saying they gave them lots of work so they could sit that back in the recliner. No, they gave them work and worked them to the place where they intended for their spirits to be crushed. We can read about Israel's enslavement and as Americans who, 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 who think, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just, just work hard, just fight back, go get your guns, don't tread on me. 
and think there was some capacity that Israel had to free themselves. They had none. They had no political power. They had no military power. They had no economic power. The only thing they had going for them was the sheer number of babies they could produce. And Pharaoh quickly steps in and what does he do? He says, I can solve this. Every son that's born is going to be cast into the Nile. An incredibly oppressed people. You know you are an oppressed people when the writer of Hebrews counts it an act of great faith that you keep your son when he is born. Exodus, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11. But God does deliver them. And he delivers them in such a miraculous way that he doesn't cause them like to sneak out of Egypt. I mean, that would have been miraculous, would it not? I mean, if they had like been able to put on camouflage and sometime late at night just kind of tiptoe out of you, shh, we're, we're sneaking out. Dig tunnels or something and pop up way down the, the road. I don't know. That's not even what happened. God delivered them in such a miraculous way that they leave under the orders of Pharaoh himself and they don't leave empty-handed. They don't leave with anyone chasing them. They leave having plundered the land of Egypt, not by force, but willingly given to them. That's an incredible deliverance. Then again, at the Red Sea, they had seen the hand of God as He defended them and then parts the waters and they walk through on dry land and then they watch those waters come crashing back down on one of the greatest militaries that there was in that day. And it was so amazing to them, get this Baraka, that a spontaneous worship service in song broke out with tambourines and dancing. Moses was right in the middle of it. So if you picture Moses, bearded guy, stoic, at least in Exodus 15, he was getting his praise on. They are eating every morning manna that God provides. They understand they need God. Now, I would argue they have no concept for how much they need God. You see, God has delivered Israel out of Egypt... But now God needs to get the Egypt out of Israel. They had no capacity to be the people God called them to be the way they were right now. He didn't want them to be like the Egyptians out of the land that they had come from. And he didn't want them to end up conforming to the Canaanites and the land into which they were going. He wanted them to be a distinct people. In fact, in this dialogue that we see between God and Moses in verse 16, Moses asks this question, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? The covenant promise made to Abraham was not just to make his descendants a great nation. There were already great nations. Egypt was a great nation. But God promised that through the descendants of Abraham, God was going to bless the entire world. Israel couldn't do that. This little word that Moses uses, distinct, has been used already in the book of Exodus. It was used the first time that God, through Moses, said to Pharaoh, For this plague, Pharaoh, I am going to set apart the land of Goshen where the people of Israel are. This plague is only going to hit the Egyptians 
and my people will be distinct, unique, different. In order for Israel to fulfill the calling that God had placed upon him, they desperately needed him. Without the presence of God among them, they had absolutely no hope. And I just want to remind you this morning of our desperate need for God. It is so easy looking at Exodus 33, looking at this situation to go, yeah, they needed God. And yet at the same time to forget that we are just as desperate for His presence in our lives. The great deliverance of Israel out of Egypt was a foreshadowing of an even greater deliverance that God was going to work through His own Son because Scripture says we are all born into sin. And there is no ability by any human being, no matter what their capacity, ability, no matter what they're willing to sacrifice to deliver themselves from enslavement to sin, that only happens by the presence of God when it shows up in the life of a person. Not only that, but we have no capacity once being saved to continue in the process of becoming the people that God has called us to be on our own. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that in 2018, no matter how much you want to become more like Christ, you have zero capacity to make one inch worth of of forward progress in this process we call sanctification on your own. You can do absolutely nothing to become more like Jesus without the presence of God in your life. It's not just individually, it's corporately. Baraka, we can do absolutely nothing of eternal value in 2018 apart from the presence of God working here among us. We can show up every single Sunday, we can sing great songs. We can hear from God's Word. We can do all of those things, but we need Him if anything of eternal value is going to happen. If the waters in the baptismal behind this screen are to be stirred this year, we need the presence of God. If we are to do the one-anothering that the Bible calls us to, we need the presence of God. If we are to make progress in fulfilling the mission that God has given to us, go into all the world and make disciples, we need the presence of God. We can't do it on our own. There is zero hope that we could accomplish anything of eternal value on our own. We are as desperate as Israel at the foot of this mountain Without God's presence, we need Him. Now let me just say this, because this is so important. Do not view here a codependent relationship. You do not see in this text God scrambling as if He needed Israel. Israel desperately needs God. If they don't have God, they won't make it. I mean, Scripture is clear. 
If you are to either stay up tonight all the way into 2018 because you're still young and foolish, or if you are to go to bed and wake up in 2018, it will only be because of the, the sustaining work of Almighty God. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that, that God holds all things together in Christ. But He is not dependent upon us in any way. God's not here, and don't picture Him here in this passage kind of, oh my goodness, Israel's failing me, what will I do? Not at all. God did not need Israel whatsoever, and God does not need you or me. We look into 2018, we say, God, I need you. If I don't have you, I will physically die. And I will spiritually die. And all of my hope and peace and joy will be dried up and I'll have nothing. God looks into 2018 and He says, I'm in the heavens and I do all that I please. I know that it sounds kind of cute to have a God who needs you, you need Him. You don't want that God. The moment you shrink God down to be a God who needs you, you have a God way smaller than the God of the Bible. I mean, seriously, I want a God who can help me when I'm weak. I want a God who can meet my needs. I also want a God who can meet the needs of the people that I love. I love you guys. You're stuck with that. Sorry. But I love you guys and I want God to be able to meet your needs and your needs and your needs and your needs and your needs. Now, if there's just a God big enough to meet the needs of the people in this room, if for one moment He had a need, what in the world would I do? I mean, if a God big enough to meet all of our needs shows up at my house and says, hey, I need a shoulder to cry on, can I lift Him up? That's why the psalmist asked the question in Psalm 50, right? I mean, let's just imagine God was hungry. Is He coming to your house? You got enough in your fridge? You got enough in your pantry? You're going to be able to feed Him, restore His strength? I don't think so. Oh, you don't want a God in need. You want a God who is totally sufficient. God does not need you, and that is a great message of hope to you in 2018. Baraka Bible Church, I love you. God does not need us. Church in America... God does not need us. He does not need our prosperity. He does not need all the theological books that we put in the English language. He does not need us. He does not need America. He does not need America to be great. He does not need. We desperately need Him. Now, there's something more here and I want to spend the rest of our time there. From need Him to desire Him. I can't speak for the rest of Israel, but Moses' words are so vividly clear in this passage. In his dialogue with God, and we read the whole chapter, verses 7-11, through 11, about this tent of meeting, because I just want you to be reminded what Moses' encounters with God were like. Face to face, one man speaking to another. So verse 12, we get this interaction between Moses and God. 
And Moses understands vividly his need for God. Moses picked up on that way back at the burning bush. God, I can't talk right. And God says, I'll be with your mouth, Moses. Don't worry about it. No, Moses understands his need for God, but this goes way beyond a need to a desire for him. Verse 12, this is what we read. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Now that takes us back to what God said in verse 2. So wait a second, Moses, God said he would send an angel. Now this sounds like what's already been said in the book of Exodus, that God would send an angel, but it's different because here, uh, or at least earlier, God said it was the angel of the Lord, which distinctly represented the presence of God. Here in this chapter, we know this isn't the presence of God. Because he says, my presence isn't going with you. No, by the way, presence, here, Hebrew word, presence literally means face. Okay, my face isn't going with you. Now that's helpful to us, because we can be around somebody and not be present, right? I mean, we can be in the same room with somebody and not really be present with them. Because we have these great things called smartphones, we can be two inches from somebody and not be present with them. Right? Because we don't have their face. The phone has their face. Right? And they're down here and they're doing this and we're talking like we're talking to somebody. Might as well be talking to ourselves. We don't have their face. God says, my face, my presence is not going with you. So this angel's going to come. Moses says, I don't know who that is. Yet, verse 12, you have said, I know you by name. And you have found favor in my sight. Now Moses had found favor. Moses had found grace. Because Moses was not looking for God. When God shows up in Moses' life, that burning bush, Moses isn't out scoping out where could I find God. No, Moses is just keeping the sheep of his father-in-law. That's all he's doing. And when God shows up, he doesn't just pick a random bush and go, okay, first shepherd that walks by and be like, hey, come over here. You with the face and legs. No, he shows up at the burning bush where he knows Moses is going to be and he calls Moses by name. It was a way of expressing his knowledge of Moses. He knew Moses. Verse 13, now we see desire of Moses begin to show itself. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Why? That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too this people. Consider too, excuse me, this nation is your people. Do you see what Moses is saying? He's saying, listen God, if I've found favor and you've shown me favor and if I continue to find favor with you, would you please show me your ways for an end goal that I might know you. Now there's two things there that have to walk together and they are so important. One, Moses does not say, I just want to have an experience with you apart from your ways. Moses doesn't have the, the whole Bible sitting there in front of him that he can read and study, but Moses knows enough that knowing God is connected to following the ways of God. 
That's so important because we live in a day and time where spirituality is really cool and you can have your higher power and we can meditate and we can talk about prayer and we can talk about spiritual stuff and that's all great and it's fine. You'll go to your God and I'll go to my God and we'll all go our own separate ways and that's great. You will not arrive at knowing the God of Scripture that way. Moses says, teach me your, show me your ways. Show them to me. I want to walk in them because I, I want to know you and that's so important. See, the two have to go together because there is the possibility to get caught up in just knowing the ways of God and forgetting that knowing the ways of God is a means to an end of knowing Him. I can get so caught up in having an accurate doctrinal statement, a clear theology that I forget it's to serve a purpose. I can get so caught up with patting myself on the back because I like expository preaching and teaching that I forget that's not an end in itself. It's, it's not the end. The end of it is to know God. And Satan would love nothing more then to sideline me in arguments over theology while I forget the God of that theology. The two have to be together. I can't presume that I'm going to come to know God without knowing His Word and loving it. But I don't just want to come and know the ways of God and forget that the goal is to know Him. Now Moses takes it a step further and we got to move on. Verse 14, God responds and He says this to Moses, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses, God says, I hear your request and I'm going to go with you. My face will go with you. And when He says, I will give you rest, He's talking about the promised land. I'm going to take you all the way into the promised land and I'm going to give you rest. Now listen to Moses' response in verse 15. And He said to him, If your presence will not go with you, me. Now consider what Moses has look, he's looking at on the table here. God has said to Moses and to Israel, I will give you the promised land. And it's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. I will give you freedom, Moses. You've got to understand, this is an enslaved people. They've never known freedom. They're homeless. They're living off of bread that falls from the sky. And God says to them, I'll give you a home and I'll give you prosperity and I'll give you freedom. Moses says, God, if your presence is not going with me, do not bring us up from here. God, leave us homeless impoverished people with your presence rather than giving us freedom and prosperity and a home apart from your presence. Now I want you to imagine that tonight you're waiting for a ball, apple, peach, whatever it is, to drop. God shows up. Like he, like he shows up with Moses at the tent of meeting. God shows up and He talks with you like one man talks to another face to face. 
And he looks at you and he says, I know you. He calls you by name because he knit you together in your mother's womb. And he says, I know you. I know your deepest heart's desires. I know everything about you. I know exactly what you desire in 2018. Now don't, don't think just riches and wealth here because God knows you. He knows every broken heart. He knows every marriage that is crumbling. He knows every relationship between a parent and a child that's falling apart. He knows every thought of despair and anxiety. He knows every desire for acceptance and approval. He knows all of those things. He knows our deepest hearts. And if He looks at you and He says to you, I'll give it to you. I'll give you what your heart desires. I will give you what you're longing for. I'll give you a great marriage. You and your spouse will love each other. You will, it will be like you just got married again. It, it's going to be amazing. Your kids are going to honor you and respect you. And they're going to be good students. And they're going to go to really good schools. And they're going to give great grandkids that are, that are just going to be beautiful. And they're going to love you and think you're great. And I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you health. I know your body is broken. I know you got aches and pains. you got that disease I'm going to cure it and I'm going to give you great health. I'll give you that. But listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not going. I'm not going. You can have all of those things, but my presence stays here. What do you say? What do you say? That crushed me. In Senegal. That crushed me. I wanted so badly to be a good missionary. I wanted so badly to make an impact in that country. I wanted so badly for the Senegalese to respect me. I wanted so badly for the missionary community to respect me. And when I read that, and I thought through that, and I thought books about Eric Flintoff as a missionary in Senegal and the impact that he made and the, the renown that I would have and, and how Baraka, when I came back, would stand in awe of me, I confess to you, brothers and sisters, my heart was vexed and I was tempted. I thought, I don't know what I would do. Moses says, don't make us leave here. I'd rather have your presence. I want your presence. And so God in verse 17 repeats the same thing. This very thing you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Do you see what Moses is saying? There's a play on this word, no. You know me, God. You know my name. You know everything about me. I want to know you like you know me. Now we know that's not possible. We can't know everything about God. But is that the tilt of your life? Is that the deepest desire of your heart? Do you read Psalm 139 that tells us about God's knowledge of us? He knows every word before it's formed in our lips. He knows when we lie down and we rise up. Does your heart scream out inside of you, God, I want to know you like that. I want to know everything I can know about you. And so Moses, who has seen the burning bush, Moses who has seen the miracles in Egypt. Moses who has seen the parting of the Red Sea. Moses who has seen Mount Sinai and gone into the darkness. Moses who speaks with God face to face has not had enough. And the prayer of his heart is, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That's what he wants. 
And God makes his goodness pass before him. And just to reinforce what we already talked about before, did you notice God, Moses' prayer is, show me your glory, and God says, my goodness will pass before you. And then he also says, and I will declare to you. Remember what Moses had prayed for before? Show me your ways. I want to know who you are. What does that mean? I need to know what you've declared. You have to tell me. I have to understand who you are. So God declares to him. Now, let me just finish quickly with this. There's a problem here that is not resolved. Do you notice that? The problem of this text is unresolved. Because God said... I am a holy God. You are a stiff-necked people. If I go up among you, I will consume you. Now he's saying my presence as a holy God, because I'm not changing, is going with you. And the reality is that as, as much as Moses longs for God, and as much as hopefully you and I long for God, we are far from being a perfect people. So how can his presence stay among them? Well, if we had the time, we could read through all of the instruction that God is giving to Moses. And in those instructions, he's talking about a thing called a tabernacle. And one of the main functions of that tabernacle is going to be that the blood, goats, bulls, sheep is going to be shed. And one time a year, blood is going to be shed and taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on this thing called the mercy seat, so that God would, God would continue to pass over. He would, he would hold back that consuming righteous wrath. But as we come into the New Testament, we find that the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews chapter 10, is not sufficient to cover sins. So what does He do? Instead of consuming us, He consumes His own Son. He says, I will reject Him as He bears your sins on the cross, as I pour out My wrath upon Him, that you might be welcomed in. I will push Him out of My presence, that you might have My presence. The message of the cross, friends, is not that you kind of need God as an accessory in your life. The message of the cross is not He's a nice add-on for 2018. The message of the cross is that you desperately need God. But more than that, the message of the cross is not that God just wants to be a part of your life or that He wants to be in your life so He can just bless you with other stuff. The message of the cross is that God opened up this opportunity for His presence in your life that you might know Him and have Him and your soul might be satisfied in Him. That's the message of the cross. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, this is what we read. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now there's an equation here. Listen to this. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, I was never really great at math, but the greater than, less than, equal to, I had that, man. Until we got into fractions. I had it. 
Is five greater than, less than, or equal to three? Oh, uh, pick me. I got this. Right? So here we've got an equation. We have reproach greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now, if that's the equation, I don't care if we're at church or anywhere else on the planet, I'm taking the treasures of Egypt. Reproach alone is not greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Never. But the whole equation changes on one word. Christ. Now notice he doesn't say the blessings of Christ are greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That I could be in for too. Sign me up. Okay. But the text says that he considered the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. May it be so for us. May we recognize our need for Him. May He stir in our hearts in 2018 a great desire for Him. And may we stand in awe of what it cost Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the reminder from Your Word this morning of our desperate need for You. I pray that as we walk into 2018, we will not shy away from our need for You and we will not in any way shrink You down to make You a God who needs us. God, I pray that we will allow Your Spirit to search our hearts and that You might expose anything, whether it be a good thing or a sinful thing, no matter what it is, anything that we are looking to to satisfy our souls apart from You. And that in 2018, our prayer that consumes us, that drives us, would be that You would show us Your ways that we might know You. That we would be obsessed with seeing Your glory, not just having an experience. We don't just want to use You to get to Your blessings. We don't just want to use You so that we can feel good. We want You because we're convinced, like Moses, that having You is of greater wealth than all the treasures the world could offer. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.